iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yo, technology, what is it all about? The more we get focused on privacy, 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 the more trade-offs we will make as a society that I'm not sure we're, we actually want to make and we're not properly grappling with those issues. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Yes, we have another episode this week, just like last week. There were a couple interviews that I've, that I've done recently that I thought would just sit well together. So, Think of this as a kind of like a wine pairing. We have Brad Smith to start us off. Let's wash it all down with Ben Thompson. Ben is the founder of Stratechery, which is one of the most well-respected tech commentary sites out there. He's followed by all the big wigs in the industry. He's very smart. And recently, he and I spoke. Ben is based in Taipei. From his outpost in Asia, he dispenses pearls on the present and future of the tech industry, on which of the big four companies are the most vulnerable to antitrust investigators, and he even talks about why we should perhaps think about Airbnb a little differently. So stick around till the end for that one. And one more side note, as a journalist, I give mad props to Mr. Thompson because he has set up a site that has what I would guess is some pretty healthy subscription revenue. So he is basically a journalist making money on his own platform. So well done him. And just one small production note before you get started. Uh, You'll hear Thompson talking about Apple in relation to Spotify in this episode. This was before Apple integrated Spotify into its Siri voice assistant. So it has made a small move toward uh, rectifying what he says are uh, is a very big issue but our conversation happened before that did so just to keep that in mind without further ado i'll give you now ben thompson of stratechery enjoy at long last thank you for for taking the time to do it i appreciate it yep no worries if we could start with the kind of the big four, and obviously they're all under investigation in one form or another, but if we could start with just from what I've read, from what you've written in the past, who you think is, in terms of the rankings, the most exposed or likely to be actually dinged in all of this, um, which I believe is Google unless things have changed. Well, I, I think it's worth pointing out that the big four excludes the largest company of them all which is, of course, Microsoft, which is striking in this conversation mm-hmm. that they are both the biggest and also the apparently not in any sort of danger at all, which is a uh, significant change of pace from the past. 
And I think one that's worth keeping in mind, I'll probably come back to Microsoft in a little bit because I think yeah. it does provide important context for what's going on. But I mean, it's interesting that the big four people seem to be missing the fact that it's actually two through five. It's not, it's, which is uh, <laughs> perhaps not what a lot of people saw coming. Well, it's so, funny. I was uh, actually just in Seattle last week in Brad Smith's office talking about his book imparting his advice uh, after 25 years fighting with the federal government. One of the pieces of advice is probably to uh, not be a consumer company because I think there's certainly <laughs> a a visibility aspect to some of this stuff. I mean, I think there's significant antitrust issues throughout the U.S. economy. I'm not sure that tech is the largest one. But then again, talking about hospitals or something along those lines does not garner sort of the attention that talking about tech does. And uh, hospitals are also sort of not assaulting media's business model. So there may not be sort of a motivation in that perspective either. There's lots of context probably around what's going on here. So uh, of the big four, I think you're referring to Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. Yeah. And the one that I've, you know, certainly view as being the most vulnerable is Google, just frankly, because they've done probably the most, the most easiest to prosecute antitrust actions, particularly around some of the sort of the, the search results. I think this is a really important point. It's important context, particularly maybe in the UK, which is that the way antitrust is educated in the US is very different than it's educated in Europe, in that yeah. Europe, it's sort of handled by the European Commission. And while there is sort of an appeal process to the courts, it's not necessarily a court orchestrated process like it is in the US. In the US, it's an adversarial process where like the Justice Department can bring an antitrust case, the FTC can bring an antitrust case, but absent a settlement, which, you know, we just saw, you know, certainly a settlement can happen, as we've seen with the FTC and Facebook and yeah. Google and things like that. Absent a settlement, if the FTC didn't settle, they would have had to go to court. You know, that has pluses and minuses. Obviously, you know, I think critics would say when the minuses is, that makes it much harder to accomplish. And I think that the proponents would say that it makes it much harder to accomplish. <laughs> I think it kind of cuts both <laughs> ways. And I think you see something like that with, with Google, for example. I think there's some of the... Google decisions that the European Commission has made have been very questionable. I would put Google Shopping at the absolute top of the list, mm. where basically Google was convicted for showing advertisements for a term that you search for, which is basically Google's entire business model. And yeah. they were supposed to show results from shopping comparison sites when if you search for a shopping comparison site on Google, it gives you shopping comparison sites. If you search for a product, it gives you a product. And I have a hard time seeing how it is actually in anyone's favor that Google will give you results that you didn't ask for. Yet that seemed to be what the European Commission was asking for. I think they've done better on other decisions, like maybe Google and Android, I think yeah. was, was, was a better argued sort of decision. But I think, honestly, as someone that has been a little concerned about the extent to which U.S. antitrust law is sort of locked in an era that might not make complete sense for, for the Internet, I think uh, the European Commission has done a lot to remind us of why having sort of more rigorous quantitative standards is also sometimes a good thing. Yeah. So in terms of, uh, I'm sure you saw the stories earlier this month of, I think it's the FTC or the DOJ or both requesting all kinds of documents and kind of getting this whole train going against all four of these big companies. But in terms of Google and especially its search results, do you think that's the most fertile ground for regulators to go after? And if so, like, where does this lead? Because I mean, as I said, I just spent a lot of time at Microsoft, and they fought for 25 years. And now they're the biggest company in the world. 
Right. Well, I, I, I do think that's sort of the most obvious. It's very interesting because I think sort of the most obvious potential harm is sort of the Google results, particularly if you take a more sort of systematic view and wonder like what happens to sort of the broader ecosystem, what happens to innovation if Google basically uses its dominant position in search to continually push its own sort of results to the detriment of sort of everyone else. And I think Google has been even a worse actor in the past, particularly back when the FTC first invested Google back in, was it 2011, 2012, where they were actually like scraping content from sites like TripAdvisor or, or Yelp. To me, that was extremely problematic. And I think the FTC should have gone further in that case. But I think it's also instructive that what the FTC did was basically get Google to stop and they secured a fine. And that's kind of the issue here is, is I think there's a sense a lot of people uh, just kind of want blood. You see this with the context of some of the FTC fines with Facebook, for example, where Facebook was you know given a $5 billion fine, which the FTC is like, this is wildly larger than anything we've done before, which which is true. And people are like mad because it didn't go far enough. And it's like, well, at some point you like you have to actually follow the law and there has to actually be you know, some sort of system for arriving at this, not just be, not just to like satisfy the baying of the New York Times. And I think that's going to be an issue here with Google, because honestly, a lot of the remedies for the issues around search are going to involve it's not going to be a structural breakup of Google. It's going to be it's going to be behavioral remedies. And that's because Google is powerful, not because of its structure. It's powerful because people like to use it. And that's a real challenge that I think faces a lot of the antitrust crusaders. They don't spend enough time grappling with which is that these companies are powerful because people choose to use them. And people get mad about, you know, Larry Page's saying that uh, the competition is only a click away. And I think the reason they get mad is because it's true. You really can literally go to another site and do search and people just don't want to. As long as that's the case, there's going to be limits to what can and arguably what should be done from a regulatory perspective. It's also the the danger that they're doing, uh, which, which I appear to be doing, which is, okay, we are the biggest, baddest search engine in the world. And we're going to serve up in results, Google Maps and Google Restaurant Reviews and whatever else, all our different properties, YouTube videos as opposed to Vimeo. And that is a way that they use that, you know, the kind of domination somewhere to impose it elsewhere. Right. But I mean, again, the I think particularly on mobile, and this is where this issue has really been brought to the fore, it's actually really convenient to have Google just give you an answer as opposed to having to dig into a link and follow a various trail. And and there's a lot of this talk about, oh, Google's no longer just 10 blue links. Uh, what consumer out there wants Google to only be 10 blue links? Well, I mean, it's so funny. A- I, just, I just wrote a story about this, which I was kind of conflicted about writing because it says there's, you know, this research, which I'm sure you saw, which some people poo-pooed, but at least the methodology of it, but you know, whatever is 50% of searches end up, they stop on Google. Because Google will just, as you say, give you the answer on a Google page, like, you know, at the top of the search results, you know, define a word or, you know, when, when was this company founded, whatever. So it's not sending you to other places that might get ad revenue or whatever from that. It's just it all stays there. But that's right. You know, and there's, a, cons- there's this real disconnect because when mobile came along, there was a lot of sort of glee that, oh, Google is screwed now. And uh, for, for, forgive my language, but that, you know, you're going to have all these apps in the app ecosystem and, and you're going to have vertical search like Yelp or TripAdvisor or whatever come along and displace Google. And so we had a competitive environment in which Google responded. They responded by making their search results more mobile friendly and mobile friendly without question. And there's no product manager in Silicon Valley that would dispute this. Mobile friendly means fewer clicks. It means fewer taps. It means getting you to what you want sooner. 
and why and that's mobile friendly because that's what like people want the answer right away they, they want it on their phone if, if you think about the use case of pulling out of your pocket and trying to find something you don't want to dink around and click around on a smaller screen you want you want the answer and so with the context that i am concerned about the the size and power of these companies and with the context that i do think google probably has the most problematic behavior i still makes me a little queasy to say that google actually doing a better job of giving consumers what they want is something that we need to be dramatically concerned about from an antitrust perspective. Yeah, and I think that's obviously the line they have to walk, right? Are you just really good or are you stepping over the line? And clearly they are in some places. I think the clearly is in question and it will be determined. You know, again, I think this is where the differences in the U.S. system and the European system are going to be very important. Again, it's, it's two levels of difference. One is the process where the U.S. it does need to go through the courts. And then the second one is the U.S. generally has a consumer welfare standard, which lots of antitrust advocates complain about because it's in many respects harder to meet. But again, I think you, you can be on the opposite side and say that's actually a feature, not a bug, particularly when it comes to questions like this. The fact that there's a lot of investigations and noise going on certainly suggests that there is going to be something that happens. I mean, where there's fire, there's smoke to a degree. At the same time, again, given the process, we're very, very far away from any sort of conviction and meaningful change happening. Yeah, absolutely. So Facebook. So if Google's on one end of the extreme in terms of their, let's call it their vulnerability, is it correct to say that you assume you see Facebook in many ways as kind of the least or much less vulnerable? Yeah, I, it's really interesting because what's funny about Facebook is the remedy is obvious. It's break up Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. And so it's like the opposite of Google, where like Google is like, oh, if you convict Google, you tell them to change what they're doing. But like, there's no obvious structural solution there. Whereas Facebook, there's an obvious structural solution, but it's not really clear what harm, if any, is is happening there. I mean, at the end of the day, Facebook's not really doing anything particularly anti-competitive. I, the, the biggest anti-competitive thing Google did was buying Instagram and WhatsApp in the first place. But that was something one, it's completely, you know, well, some of us who kind of like understand, you know, look at business models and how these things work, were very concerned about those purchases. I tweeted the day it happened. I think it happened at the same time that Netscape like officially died or went out of business or something or was sunsetted <laughs> by the Mozilla Foundation. I basically yeah. tweeted that it's, it's kind of ironic that this happened the same day because this is as if Microsoft buying Netscape back in, you know, back in the 90s. For, for a certain subset of people, there was a clear awareness this was going to be an issue at the same time we're talking about a a social network with a million people and no revenue and there's really nothing in the regulatory toolkit to say that this shouldn't be allowed you know that was the issue there once that happened and once it is where it is now it's very hard to see what if anything facebook is doing wrong from a regulatory perspective and i think that a lot of the issues in facebook's case are People frustrated with the legislative process grasping for any tool that seems easier to leverage. And so it's like, well, we can't get a law passed in Congress, so let's use antitrust. The problem is, is those are very different questions and functions for good reason. The reality is, is the concerns people have about Facebook and privacy and whatever and things on those lines are best sort of addressed via Congress. If the feeling is that Congress is not going to do anything, then the the answer is not to bend antitrust sort of uh, regulation into an unrecognized form, it's to get stuff done in Congress. Right. In other words, pass laws to to make Right. Basically, it, it, put, it, put it, up new guardrails. That's right. If there's an issue that requires a law, then you should pass a law, not try to like get one made up through the courts. It may seem obvious to some, but w- why were you so convinced then? You know, the day they bought Instagram or the day they bought WhatsApp, that that was anti-competitive. 
I mean, what is it about social networks that makes that? Is it just, you know, the network network effects and size? Yeah, I mean, the, the big issue with Facebook owning Instagram is actually on the advertising side. Imagine a world, a counterfactual, where Facebook did not own Instagram. So number one, the stock would be under tremendous pressure because there would be tons of panic and concern about decreased engagement with the Facebook app. And the fact that it's not under as much pressure as it would be otherwise is because everyone knows that Instagram engagement is just going up and up and up and up. You know, as you know, with Silicon Valley companies, like nothing quite puts pressure on them like the stock going down. Not just because of the obvious reasons because shareholders get upset, but because employees in Silicon Valley are very highly compensated via stock which means that you actually get internal pressure and you have recruiting issues and retention issues. Issue number two is that advertisers would be much more diversified in general because they would have no choice but to be. Today, if you're an advertiser and you want to reach, you know, say people in their you know, young 20s, you might think, well, actually, Snapchat has better engagement with this group. But the question of advertising is, a, is an ROI question, return on investment. And there's two parts to that, to that equation. So Snapchat might have better R, better return, because there's more people on there, it's better engagement, whatever it might be. But to go on Snapchat, you have to deal with this sort of an immature ad network, you know, tools that aren't as good, targeting that's not as good. You have to make new creative that fits on Snapchat. The I, the investment is much greater. Whereas on the other hand, you're already on Facebook because Facebook is the most important sort of advertising engine outside of, outside of Google. And then it's trivial to just go on Instagram beyond that. It's the same tools, same salespeople, same targeting information. It's literally just clicking a box to add, add on to Instagram. And that's the real issue is that for advertisers, there's really no point in going beyond Google and Facebook because Facebook is sort of all-encompassing. From a user, Facebook and Instagram are distinct entities. From an advertiser perspective, it's the same entity. And that's the real concern. And I think has been a real sort of retardant on consumer tech innovation because advertising is, is so clearly the business model for sort of consumer technologies, just because so many of them depend on scale and the way to get scales for it to be free, which means it's advertising supported. There's a lot of alignment of incentives there. And right now, Google and Facebook are just, uh, you know, very dominant in that regard. And it's very hard to scratch out anything beyond a niche uh, underneath that. Couldn't we contort ourselves if we were antitrust guys to be like, well, that is, you know, it might be two steps removed, but that's consumer harm. If yeah, not better I, the challenge tech, is that you're example. basically talking about a sort of monopsony situation where the only buyer, yeah. where advertisers only go to Google or Facebook. The problem is to show monopsony, you need to usually need to show like a limitation on supply and sort of like a, a an effect on price. And the challenge with digital advertising is there's an infinite amount of supply, so there really is no limitation there, and, and there is no restriction on advertisers going somewhere else. Again, it's the same issue as is on the consumer side. Advertisers go to Facebook and Google because it works better. And it, you know, it, and it seems very problematic to say that's a bad thing, that advertisers are following their own interest and choosing the platform that monetizes better. Again, you could take a, a very systematic structural perspective and say this is bad for innovation on a very large scale. Again, that might fly with the European Commission, but that's not going to fly very far uh, with the U.S. system. No. So to that point. Amazon, as you have rightly pointed out many times, it's not dominant. I mean, it's not the kind of monopoly supplier in virtually any and really any market in which it operates. 
Yeah, I mean, that's right. Yeah. You can get into like very narrow niches, like yeah. this particular product they're dominant in. But as far as retail, I mean, it's less than 10%. And it, it, it seems very challenging to bring an antitrust case in a market in which they're less than 10% of the market. And, you know, things like favoring their products in search results or even having their own products, even if they're using data to decide what third products to build, like that's literally what retailers have been doing forever. Like there's nothing new under the sun here. Like we have house brands that are propped up on the shelves. And oh, if you want your your brand to be above the house brand, what do you have to do? You have to pay the retailer. Retailers have driven profit for ages. And so why is Amazon different, I think, is a challenge that's gonna need to be need to be addressed here. And again, I'm I'm sounding like this massive like big company defender here. <laughs> but I think the I think what it speaks to is a lack of appreciation and understanding of how these companies get and maintain power. I mentioned at the very beginning that I was going to come back to Microsoft. I think the issue is that the vast majority of regulators and critics are looking at these companies through the lens of Microsoft in the 90s. And they're trying to see harm in the same way that Microsoft created harm back then. But Microsoft was a platform. It was a, it was a company that everyone had to interact with because they had the APIs that sort of tie everything together and stuff would sit on top of that. And where Microsoft really went wrong is when they would sort of vertically integrate, where they would tie the, the browser on top to the operating system. Bundling Internet Explorer. That's right. Or they would dictate terms to OEMs in an unfair way who were tied on the bottom sort of to Windows. And so sort of this up and down issue. So people look at Amazon and they look at sort of the, the products on the store and like, oh, that's kind of like Microsoft, right? Sitting on top. But actually, the issue with these companies is much more horizontal in nature. Again, the big issue that I pointed to in this case was Facebook and the way it sort of expanded horizontally. And there wasn't really an awareness by regulators to keep an eye out for that horizontal expansion. And I think it's just because the framing, the mental framing of Microsoft being representative of a tech company antitrust problem is a mistaken one. And, and we need to think about it sort of sort of differently. You know, the one we didn't talk about also is is Apple. The App Store, for example, that seems to that might be their Achilles heel in terms of regulation. Well I well, would I would hope so, because to me, the App Store is the most blatant example of an antitrust violation in tech. I mean, we have an issue to take the most extreme example. Apple is competing directly with Spotify and Spotify has to pay a 30% tax or a massive usability tax against them. It's it's hard to imagine. Because the user, usability, the usability tax is basically you have to use this but not through the app. That's store. right. That's right. You have to figure out a way to subscribe to Spotify. You can't even have a link in the Spotify app that kicks out to a web browser so you can sign up. The user has to somehow magically figure out to go to a browser, type in Spotify.com and sign up. If Spotify doesn't want to impose that usability tax, they have to pay 30% to Apple by having an in-app purchase in there. It's textbook anti-competitive. It's it's kind of amazing in its in its brazenness. And I think there's a, you know, the entire fact that this hard requirement of the 30% through Apple's App Store with no alternative, no ability to even link to a browser where they could sign up without that. It's disappointing, not just from because it's I think it's a regulatory problem, but I think that's actually where a huge amount of innovation has also gone to die. I talked about the advertising issue, but the reality is, is the business model 
just aren't there for apps. And Apple talks a lot about apps in the App Store and all the things that it's provided. But the truth is we've got no really large, significant companies that are meaningful from the App Store. It's mostly stuff that's tacked on to exterior services or comes from big brands, wherever it might be. And I think that's because Apple's policies have limited innovation in a way that's, that I think is problematic, not just from a sort of consumer harm perspective where you can you know, view costs, but also from a broader sort of systematic sort of perspective. Because effectively, you know, if you want to be on their land, you have to pay a 30% tax just to exist. That's right. And, uh, you know, I have no problem with Apple, you know, profiting from their innovation. The App Store was was a tremendous piece of innovation. Let's be super clear about that. Uh, the issue that I have is at some point, the smartphone crosses the line from sort of like a console to something that's so meaningful to day to day life that you have to take sort of more concern and there's more responsibilities that come with sort of the app store. And you talk about something like Netflix, for example, what exactly does Apple have to do with Netflix and its success or not? So why do they get to impose either 30% or a usability tax? Same thing with Spotify. What does Apple have to do with Spotify success or not? I say, well, they have a smartphone that exists. You play Spotify. Okay. But uh, you know, at what point do you simply by virtue of having created a platform get to take 30% from basically everyone on earth? We, we already decided I uh, both, both sort of economies, both both Europe and the U.S., that that was not okay in the case of Microsoft. And frankly, if Microsoft did anything approaching what Apple does with the App Store, I mean, what, what they were doing was very, very small fries <laughs> compared to what <laughs> Apple's doing here. Uh, and and so to me that that's a to me that that's the sort of most clear cut issue of all, which is maybe a bit counterintuitive because a lot of people tend to view Apple as as a bit more cuddly than the other companies. They have done exceedingly well by championing themselves as like the guardians of privacy in this age of surveillance. And I think that's helped them publicly. Well, and I th it's also worth pointing out, I think this is particularly important for uh, European listeners to hear, is that privacy is a tremendous issue when it comes to antitrust. The more laws and more rules you have around privacy, again, uh, dealing with a sort of with computers and the internet, which runs on data and spews out data. And you're, I think there's some aspect of you're sort of fighting a losing battle regardless by the very nature of the medium. But you're also making these companies much more dominant, much stronger. Is something like GDPR going to be a burden for Google and Facebook? And, you know, are they going to fight against it? Of course they are. But this is all relative. It's going to, the burden that's going to fall on them when you think about Google, right? You just talked about more than 50% of, of people stay on Google for the results. Well, there's no issue from a GDPR perspective from or much less of an issue with sort of collecting and using data on your own site, right? It's much more of an issue when you get these third-party and cross-site sort of things, which is the issue with almost everyone other than Facebook and Google, where they're dealing with these modular sort of third-party networks as far as data collection and advertising and raise much more significant privacy concerns. And so if you crack down on those privacy issues, you're only empowering the biggest companies that supposedly we're concerned about from an antitrust perspective. And this is a fundamental issue that I think has been completely sort of ignored by a lot of folks that are pushing a very strong pro-privacy sort of stance is the the trade-off that you are making, whether you know it or not, is to have larger companies with higher walls around them. Yeah, exactly. And you can see this with Facebook. I wanted to go back to one moment. I mean, things yeah, yeah. like investigating, like I, I am very concerned. What are we doing to ourselves with social media? Like what is the societal harms that happen? What are the issues with, with young people being on social media all the time? Like stuff that I think is super important and needs research. Guess what? Guess what's being killed? 
all that research because of privacy concerns. Like, what about the issues of trafficking online or, or, or child exploitation? A lot of that happens via social networks. Guess what is the hardest thing to get out of the social networks? Anything around those issues because of privacy issues. And the more sort of rules and concerns we put, the more we get focused on 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 privacy, 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 the more trade-offs we will make as a society that I'm not sure we're, we actually want to make and we're not properly grappling with those issues. The issue of size is interesting. So if you talk about the App Store and what they're doing with Spotify and all these other app companies, in theory, they can just, they can cut their take or just change their behavior. But it does feel like part of why they're doing that is because their other parts of their empire are slowing down. And same thing with Facebook. Now they're extracting every last bit they can out of Instagram because Facebook is what it is. It's still kind of growing, but it's not what it was, et cetera. Is this part of that cycle? For you yeah, I trouble? do think that tends to be the case. I think the irony of this is sort of implicit in what you just said is that regu- regulation is actually even less sort of necessary than it might seem in some respects. Because if the goal is to sort of slow down and break up these companies, well, arguably they're already slowing down and under threat, and that's why they're doing stuff that gets more problematic. That's not to say that we shouldn't do things from a regulatory perspective, but I do tend to view regulation as a – not only is it sort of a thing that happens well after sort of the issues at hand, but it it actually is probably a – it's a bearish sign for companies, not because they're going to suffer from regulation, but because pump companies do illegal things or bordering on illegal things when they are sort of searching and scratching around for, for additional growth. So I completely agree with you. Yeah, because I mean, now Apple's in the movie business and in the TV business and, you know, it's all about services. But, you know, this company used to sell computers, then it sold phones, and now it's a, you know, Hollywood studio. It's kind of well, interesting I, I, how that, that, that the same evolution. thing with Google too I mean the the Google has been stuffing maintaining its results by stuffing more and more ads into its mobile results in particular there's certainly reason to wonder how long they can sort of push that that, that string as it were so I think that's is generally the case voiceover describes what's happening on your iPhone screen voiceover on settings so you can navigate it just by listening books Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
it strikes me, especially as I said, I was just at Microsoft and t- talking to them about their kind of whole experience. And of course, 1998 was when the DOJ came after them and 20 attorneys general, et cetera. And, you know, they are where they are now. They're a trillion dollar company. But that was the same year that Google was founded. And to, to your point around, you know, they're already so big, they're already kind of being forced to do these things that are right along the, the borderline of legal, maybe not legal. Do you think this is even necessary, this kind of the big regulatory tidal wave that appears to be coming? Or is or is it already kind of being written that the, the new companies are going we're going to come up regardless? Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical about sort of how much of a difference it makes in the long run. Part of it is it comes along too late to sort of matter, which is sounds like a bad thing. That That is a good thing. I mean, we don't want a sort of a, what's what's the movie where they anticipate people's crimes? Tom Cruise one. I know yeah, like, about. like we want to be a little wary about that. Again, I think we can be more wary about yeah. acquisitions in particular. Like I think we could have been more anticipatory about Facebook acquiring Instagram, for example. But to anticipate like what harm might Google do back in 2003, I think would be a big mistake and would really kill a lot of innovation, a lot of consumer benefits. Again, particularly since it's 2019 and we can see issues they've done that are wrong, yet also we can have a real debate about, well, there actually is some consumer benefit here. So I do think that by and large, there is a sort of trailing, probably less useful than it might be. At the same time, I think there probably is value I don't know to what extent Google was thinking about potential antitrust issues in 2010 or 20, 2009 or whatever. Probably not enough. Certainly there is an argument. Again, this argument go both ways. The argument could be that the antitrust remedies compared to the power uh, and, and sort of cash generation capabilities of these companies is such that it's always in their interest to not worry about it at all. At the same time, I think you know having – at least trying to get sort of a flashing yellow light if if there's not a red light so that companies are aware of this is probably a good thing. So in general, it's kind of a mess, but we probably muddle through in about as optimal way as possible where, yes, the antitrust sort of action is probably too late to actually prevent, make a real difference. At the same time, to just say, well, throw our hands up and say, well, it's helpless. Let's not do anything. That's probably not the best solution. I know that's sort of very unsatisfying because it's like ideally we want the world to operate perfectly <laughs> according to the rules we put down but the world is messy and and yeah. messiness is a good thing and a bad thing and the balance is probably about right yes bad stuff happens and yes we do hold them accountable at, at some point and no it probably doesn't make a big difference but it probably wouldn't have made a big difference anyway because this the forces that propel these companies are so powerful that they're going to become large no matter what. I mean, that's the nature of the internet. And I do think there's much more blatant antitrust issues, like I said, outside of tech that probably deserve more attention, but that doesn't mean tech doesn't have their own and that attention isn't warranted. So the fact that it's unsatisfying, it's one of those cliche sort of things, but that probably means we have it probably about right. So this this idea, this theory that quote unquote big tech is too big, that it is squashing competitors you're less convinced by that. You think the next generation will come up anyway. I don't know what what exactly people propose to do about it. Particularly on the internet, I think tech is big because you have this positive feedback loop where consumers use these platforms or use these, I call them aggregators, because I actually think they're distinct from platforms like Microsoft. Consumers use these aggregators, which means the various suppliers, whether that be content companies or, or, or whatever, or websites or wherever it might be, come onto these platforms 
platforms on sort of the terms of that central player of that aggregator. And that makes consumers more interested because there's more, you know, think about Apple in the app store. There's more apps there. So I'm going to go back to the app store. Well, that makes developers both more desirous to come onto the app store and also more willing to tolerate Apple being unfair in the app store because they just have the most users. And so you get this sort of positive feedback loop and those feedback loops are so powerful and operate so quickly that there's actually very little I think any regulator could do to restrict that. Now, again, I do think it's useful to come in, you know, once it's there's harm being done, say, wait, you know, and ideally the next Apple will be more aware and cognizant of those issues and perhaps not go as far as as Apple did. But I don't know that you're going to actually make the next Apple or the next app store not happen because it's happening because of for structural reasons for how the internet works. The internet has zero friction. You can reach anyone anywhere. You can serve the entire world. Like all these sort of points of friction in an analog world that don't exist online lead to large companies inevitably. And that's not a regulatory failure. That's a reality of the internet. And to the extent that regulators need to adjust, I think it's to again, think, understand more clearly these dynamics, again, cut things off like acquisitions, I think is a bit, should be a big area of focus because that's, you want to, you want to limit the growth, but sort of accept the fact that internal organic growth is inevitable. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. One other macro trend, the last one is the death of the gig economy or, you know, the kind of potential death of the gig economy with this new, California law that would basically make Uber, Lyft, et cetera, treat their contractors as employers. And obviously, they've come back and said, well, that's a very nice law, but we're not going to comply, and here's why. But it does feel like that that may be the start of something. And if it is, I mean, that could, has the potential to completely reshape a large swathe of these companies that have come up in the past 10 years. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I don't think that, I think the framing around Uber and Lyft and DoorDash's sort of response is a little unfair. Like, there is an argument to be made that they are setting a marketplace for drivers and riders. And that is what's happening. And so it's not out of the realm possibility for them to say, we are a market maker and the drivers are drivers and they do a different business than we are. And that's that that is the crux of the issue. It is is Uber in the driver business or are they in the marketplace business? That like and Uber's argument is we're in the marketplace business. Therefore in in the the test of the laws are we in the same or different businesses? As I understand it, ideally we come up with some sort of compromise where there's a third classification, right? There's employee, there's contractor and there's something in the middle. Cuz I think clearly there are certain issues around the employment model of companies like Uber that, you know, impose societal costs, uh, particularly around things like unemployment or, or, or health insurance or things along those lines. And that's something that we need to address. I'm not sure making it introducing more friction into the system and, you know, taking away genuine opportunities from people that don't want Uber to necessarily be their full-time job, but want to be able to, you know, make some extra money on the side. And oh, by the way, this always seems to be forgotten with Uber. Uber's benefit to consumers is astronomical. That's what's so funny about Uber, the company, is because they've had, you know, they've done so many dumb things and also arguably illegal things and there are CEO issues and, and cultural issues. It gets lost that the societal benefit of a service like Uber and having people 
broadly having much more uh, access to transportation. There's lots of statistics around the reduction in things like drunk driving, increase in sort of entertainment in cities and, and things along those lines. Like there's a big benefit. And it, it, the irony has always been comparing sort of Uber to something like Airbnb, where I think Airbnb sort of problematic effects on cities are actually much larger than, than Uber, yet no one seems to be upset about Airbnb. Uh, it's kind of a striking sort of dichotomy there. And, you know, I think it's something where, when you think about something like these processes, certainly the the labor and, and unions sort of seem to have a strong voice in pushing this law through in California. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of a constituency for sort of the, the users of Uber. And this is Uber's fault, to be clear. Uh, I think Uber accomplished a lot from a sort of political perspective in the first seven to eight years of their company because they would rally the riders to their cause. And what happened with Uber was all the bad press that they got, and that's not to minimize the issues, but just sort of from from a big picture perspective, the bad press, the real harm to Uber was that it killed sort of their their biggest political weapon, which is no one wants to go to battle for Uber anymore. It's kind of a shame because I think if we are going to look at it from a consumer harm perspective, are we actually going to a better place or to to a worse place? And that's it. I want to thank Ben for for taking the time. He's a very busy man. I just uh, I find his views on on the tech industry they're always a bit different. They kind of pierce through a lot of the blather that's kind of generally circulating around in the ether. I hope you guys found that interesting and useful and entertaining. And I will be writing this week in the paper about a couple different things. It's actually still up in the air, so you'll just have to buy the paper. Or if you don't live in the UK, subscribe online. And I'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.